All right, here we are. Another week, another scalding hot screen to talk about. <laughs> yeah, scalding is the Oof. operative term. Wow. There's Bubbling about... and brewing. Bubbling <laughs> all over. <laughs> all over the place. I am your, your co-host, JL Martinez, along with Kevin Sharpley. This is Screen Heat Miami, and we are brought to you by Gajika Multimedia, the Miami Media and Film Market, Cinevision, and Kamakul. And so uh, today's guest, very interesting guest. I'll let you do the intro. Quincy Perkins, you can tell us a little more about this gentleman that we interviewed. Uh, the Swiss Army Knife. Yes. Swiss Army Knife of Media Professionals. Mm-hmm. Professional. Yes. Jack of Slice and dice. <laughs> Does so many things. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Does them well. So we're excited about Quincy's interview and the trajectory of his career. I mean, it's been something else. Mm-hmm. You know, you start in one place, you think you're going to do one thing, and then you just evolve and navigate the waters, end up on an island. Yes. Yes, yes, you do. You wind up on an island. Unfortunately, we have to talk about a gentleman who is looks like he's on an island uh, after the free fall following the Academy Awards. I know that we alluded oh, to man. that, but Danger uh, Island. Oof, Danger Island. But breaking news out of Variety that it looks like Will Smith following Slapgate, the the Academy and their Board of Governors did meet earlier today and decided on a ten year ban for Will dying. Smith. Yes, he got a dime. Yes, or as we say, a decade under the influence. That's what, <laughs> so, yeah, that was... Swift, uh, hard, and unrelenting, this jurist delivery mm-hmm. is hardcore. But it yes. was expected. It was. Originally, though, the meeting was supposed to take place April 18th, apparently because Will Smith kind of preempted it a little bit and, and resigned from the Academy, they decided to move the, the meeting up to April 8th. And, you know, now that Academy membership was no longer on the table, uh, they felt like this was the next best step to show that there are serious repercussions for, you know, bitch slapping a comedian on stage. And unfortunately, what happened to, to, to our friend, to Chris Rock. But, I don't know uh, if I would have put it in that way, but. Uh, right. Well, it is what happened. It was a yeah, pretty I mean, strong it a, cock back. It was a cock back. Yeah, that's, but, that's uh, pretty hardcore. Hardcore stuff. It happened, and so you know, some folks were were calling for it even uh, more uh, s- uh, severe penalty, including taking away Will Smith's Oscars. That did not fly the muster of the government. Yeah, but board. we talked about that last. We week. did. We did talk yeah, about they, that. They weren't going to take away the Oscars. Yeah, yeah, especially since you know guys like Roman Polanski <laughs> and the Weinstein still have their Oscars then it felt that it was kind of unfair to do that to to Mr. Smith. But they did decide on this sort of 10-year ban where he will be banned from all Academy events, including, of course, the flagship Academy Awards. That said, he still can still get an Academy Award. He can still be nominated. He can still win an award. And I'm assuming it'll get there with two-day free delivery via Amazon Prime. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Amazon is moving even faster and faster, so... They are. It could be a drone. Get it. They'll just yeah, drone it. it over. Drone it to him. Yeah, that, that might be that might be the better case. So, but unfortunately, it doesn't end with the Oscars for Will Smith. 
has uh, been mentioned in the trades over the past couple of weeks, the major studios, including four Netflix, films. Yeah. Sony pushed back, pushed back. Uh, the latest one from Hollywood reporter Netflix backs away from the Will Smith film fast and loose. This was something that was supposed to be directed by David Leach, who apparently they did, in all fairness, lose the director before the Oscars, but it was still sort of on the fast track for Netflix. And then it was quietly, as they say, put on the back burner following the Oscars incident. Yeah. And, you know, a movie that I was really looking forward to because I, I really did enjoy Bad Boys 3. Mm-hmm. I think they did a phenomenal job on Bad Boys 3. I was looking forward to Bad Boys 4. And so, um, I think they'll probably ultimately go ahead with that because, you know, it's a franchise and, you know, it has more involved with that particular franchise, but Bad Boys 4. So that one has been, I don't, I, I wouldn't say they axed it, you know, but that has definitely been put on the back burner. How long it'll be on the back burner or even if it's taken off the burner and put in the refrigerator, right. you know, to to bring it back later, you know, that's not necessarily happening. I don't think anything is happening and he's going to, I mean, he has disappeared mm. with the exception of the announcement that he's resigning from the board. Right. But I mean, it's still just really hard to believe you yeah. build such an illustrious career mm. and for it to be just with a snap yeah. or a slap, uh, just disappear. And it's, gone yeah 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 you gotta you know uh pardon the pun for his uh aladdin character genie but uh looks like you know you get sometimes be careful what you wish for in the blink of an eye your whole life can change and like you said it's a shame because this is a career that will has built since really the late 80s when he started as a rapper since he was a kid a teenager he was a teenager you know uh like i said originally the rapper dj jazzy jeff you know all the summertime fun stuff you know big willie you know, uh, obviously the Fresh Prince and then his foray into feature films, starting with what we just mentioned, Bad Boys, which was the breakout movie followed and Independence Day, Independence Day, like back to back mega hits, which really propelled him into A-list Men stardom. Men in Black. Men in Black. Like it was just one after another in the 90s that really made him really a, a sizable global superstar. And then he went into yeah. more award winning or award nominated fair, Ali. Of course, yeah. The pursuit Ali, of Happiness. Pursuit of Happiness, yeah. Concu- what was a concussion movie that he did that, uh, yeah. yeah, whatever. That's the one that they yeah. say he could have, should have been, you know. And then other fun stuff like Hitch that's been very popular as well. Yeah, and, the range. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. comedic spins. Yeah, obviously, like I mentioned, The Genie, you know, as you mentioned, the, the Aladdin, the huge hit. One of the huge. top 10 films in history. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that was that was a big one. And not many actors in, in Hollywood would even dare to take the shoes of the great Robin Williams. But I think that uh, that Will definitely did a great job in kind of evolving that character and making it his own while he was doing that. So, yeah, just had a tremendous career. Obviously, the Bad Boys franchise, you know, the last installment, Bad Boys for Life, was a huge hit as well for Sony. So this is someone, you know, having basically now that we know just won the Oscar with King Richard, someone whose trajectory of his career was felt like it was just unstoppable. Building to that moment, all building to this one moment. Yeah. And it's like that 
kind of yin and yang, you know? It is. Yeah. But like you said, for every yin, there is a yang. And on the opposite side of the coin, as Rolling Stone, as Rolling Stone points out, uh, looks like Chris Rock did get the last laugh at he the has Rock been selling, selling out like hotcakes. And so, you mentioned it last week. Actually. I did. Yeah. Yeah. I, I may have touched upon that when we did our Oscar special. Forecast it. Yes. We forecast that his sales yes. might skyrocket. But they yeah, did. they did. Yeah. Apparently what it's saying is that in the in the 48 hours following the Oscars, he had more ticket sales for his live concert tour than he had in the previous month combined. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, he's not saying anything. People are. I'm not saying that this is the reason because he's a you know, very talented comedian, storyteller. Really. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, you know, there's still a debate and I'm seeing both sides, you know, debate on whether he should have gone there with it. And, you know, there's a lot, of course, violence is never the answer. So that's the other side of it. But, you know, whether he knew about the condition that Jada had, but coming out of it, he has really, he hasn't addressed yet what has happened. And so I think people are waiting on bated breath to see when he's going to address it. Maybe he won't, you know, maybe a year later, he's still, you know, booking concerts and grabbing audiences for (laughs) the moment that he does say it, you know, people will probably continue to pour in in droves, you know, waiting to hear when when he's going to address it. But he did say that he is. And he said, it will, you know, it will be funny. Right. He said it'll be serious and funny. Poignant, and he did poignant yeah, and funny, poignant and funny. And so he he's going to tease it for a while. I'm assuming by the time his next Netflix special or whatever is going to get recorded by then, he probably will have worked that into his act. I have to imagine that the next time he records his televised special, that has to be a part of it. I would, I would guess, but you know, we could be wrong, but anyway, it is, uh, it's been great for the rock business. You know, something that came out of the story as well that I didn't know is how many brothers Chris rock has. Yeah. His brother has been on it. He has 10 brothers. Yeah. And so his brother, I saw a clip from his brother's, uh, well, he was in some kind of, you know, concert and, or I don't know if it was a concert, but he was on stage. And I think it was like, um, you know, a bunch of comedians. And he, he addressed it. He's like, he, you know, Will Smith, if you mess with one rock, there's 10 of us. You mess with all of us. Wow. And, you know, I'm not going to let this go. Mm. He's like, you don't want 10 rocks after you. And now you got 10 rocks after you. Yeah. And so <laughs> I didn't know there was 10 brothers. That's something else. But uh that's a, that's a yeah. baseball team right there. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, or basketball team, both sides, or there you know, you football team almost. Yeah, it's a, yeah, it's a, a team nonetheless. Yeah, but but yeah, it looks like at least financially speaking, Chris Rock's going to be okay, and probably better than what he anticipated. You know, uh, previous to the Oscars. But uh, speaking of things doing better, even than anticipated, you oh, had a man. great story Bridgerton. about Bridget. Yeah, what do we got? Woo! Bridgerton. Season really two. exploding. Season two. Ratings record. Oh, a ratings record? It wasn't as critically praised. So a lot of people are saying, you know, it wasn't as strong as the first season. Hmm. But, you know, the, the main male lead 
bowed out for the second season. So they went in a different direction. And I think that, you know, he brought uh, a lot of gravitas and, you know, there was a, ba- you know, this kind of balance between him and the mate and the main actress, that dynamic between the, t- the electricity and dynamic between the two of them in that first season that really drew people in. Right. But, uh, you know, a lot of people are praising the season for the diversity. They focused in on East Asian. So the Indian community, there's an Indian woman that that's the lead of that. And so, you know, I have to give it up for what they've done with this particular series. But what they've also done is they've created the leading English language series for Netflix. Mm-hmm. Now, that is just really, really incredible because what a lot of people don't know is that Netflix, in terms of numbers, are led by a lot of their international hits. Right. So Squid Game, for example, is their biggest hit by right. far. Right. But, and this is a big but for Bridgerton season two to come in and claim this position is a, a big coup, a big yeah. coup. So we have to give it up for Shonda Rhimes. Her production company is killing it. Oh, yeah. Because you have Bridgerton that's coming in at number two. And then she has another series, uh, Killing Anna. Is, I believe it's called Killing Anna, um, which is number six. Wow. So. Rocking. When I say scoring a coup, Netflix scored a coup because what they were able to do is Shonda Rhimes, she was embedded in ABC. And and this is what she said, you know, she wanted to get some family member to Disney and um, they wouldn't give her tickets. Wow. And so she I remember that story. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And Netflix, Netflix jumped in with all of the muster and bluster and money. When I say muster and bluster, I mean money. Yeah. and scooped her up. And now look at what happens. Yeah. I, I mean, I know those Disney tickets are expensive, but come on. It's Shonda Rhimes. <laughs> that was an expensive ticket. <laughs> that was an ex- for Disney. Exactly. Cost them a lot more than the price of entry. But uh, what are we going to do? I think what we should do, though, is jump into our interview. It's a great interview with Quincy Perkins. So I say we, we get into that because we have more stories in the outro that we definitely need to get into in terms of breaking news from corporate Hollywood, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So... Um, with that being said, this is a great interview with the Swiss Army knife of the film and entertainment industry here in South Florida, Quincy Perkins. Ready. <laughs> yeah, so we are recording now. We're here with Quincy Perkins. This is an interview that's been a long time coming. We've been waiting for this interview for a couple of months. So we, we uh, met at the Miami Film Festival. Is that right? So, yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, yeah. That you know, two, two years ago, three years ago now? It was a few. Yeah. Let's just say a couple of years ago. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I have to say the industry here at a certain level, you know, everyone begins to know everyone else. So mm. You know, yeah. sooner or later, we'll have every single person on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting because, um, you know, being from Key West and, and operating down there for over a decade, 
Um, you know, we're like I, I told you over the phone a few days ago. We're, you know, we're we're twice as close to Cuba as we are to the nearest Walmart. Yeah. So we're really out there in the middle of nowhere in the in the ocean, and um, it's it's interesting because I was I always sort of felt like an outsider to the Miami film industry and the people that were involved up here and um but on the other hand there was a sort of exoticness that i had before i came to miami uh you know of, of who's this director down in key west and and all the stuff he's doing um now that i'm here in miami that's all gone <laughs> you know, uh, i'm just another number but uh no it's uh it's interesting i i was joking with a friend the other day that uh, you know, when I came up from Key West up here, I could always get a meeting. And now that I live in Miami, it's tough to get anyone to call me back. <laughs> you know what? That's it, the same. The same phenomenon happens in Los Angeles. So yeah. yeah, if you say I'm flying in from New York or London or Miami, oh sure, I'll make time. But once you're an LA person, it's like right, right, you're gonna right. wait, pal. <laughs> <laughs> I, can do nothing new. I can get to you anytime. Yeah. Right. I'll keep the Key West on my business card for now. There you go. There you go. Yeah. yeah you know, I, I love Key West. Uh, I just had a film in the Key West Film Festival. And, you know, we'll I know you know a lot about the Key West Film Festival, so we'll talk about that in a minute. But certainly if, it felt really good to be down there. The environment is so conducive to creativity. Mm -hmm. it's, it, it feels like art in and of itself being there. QS has always had that history to it as well. I mean, you know, with Tennessee Williams and Truman Capote and of course, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of artists, a lot of designers, clothing designers, Calvin Klein was down there for a long time. Um, you know, we've had a lot of, from the literary side, a lot of writers, um, uh, you know, and, and it just continues to grow. And of course, you know, the practical arts too, and painting and sculpture, uh, you know, when you walk through Old Town, you know, it's one of the oldest wooden historic districts. Um, and so it's, it's, con it's conducive to a lot of painters sitting with their easels on the sidewalk and, and painting a house. Um, and yeah, growing up within that, it was very, that, that was certainly part of why I got into filmmaking. Um, at the time, and still, there really aren't any filmmakers from Key West. Uh, there were certainly filmmakers that visited, but um, there was it, it was unheard of down there to do anything with film. Uh, and a lot of that just has to do with, you know, films take large crews and, uh, and you have to source that locally most of the time. So, you know, if you're down in Key West and you're trying to shoot a film, uh, which, you know, I've done and, and I'm sure we'll talk about here, uh, there, there's no one to help you. Uh, you're kind of on your own. You, you know, you can certainly teach people. But the other problem with Key West is that it's very expensive to live there. And so uh, it's hard to get uh, cheap help. You know, you can't, <laughs> if you're shooting over weeks, it's, it's nearly impossible to get someone just to, you know, uh, do a non-union, non-paid job. That's, doesn't exist in Key West. You know, most people have two or three jobs. And so it, it can be, uh, it can be a lot of, um, 
a lot of work to find the right people to to join your crew or to join your circle and help you make films. Yeah, well, you know, that's our, that, that sounds like you know, the process of things. And in the process of things, you know, we like to dive into the process of our, our guests mm-hmm. and how they matriculated into wherever they're at. Right. So um, let's just get a little bit of background on you. Where, yeah. where are you from? Yeah. I think you know it's it's interesting because I get asked this question a lot. My I, I really had no kind of straight uh, way into the film industry. It was a very strange uh, story that I had getting into it. Um, you know, I had um, uh, I graduated college. I'd I'd grown up in Key West, but I'd I'd gone up to school up in the Northeast, and and I graduated college um, uh, in two thousand and two. Uh, months after 9-11 had happened. And I was a linguistics major. And if you were a linguistics major um, from college up in the Northeast, the State Department was all over your ass. Um, oh, I'm sorry, can we cuss on this podcast? You, you, you let, it, let, it, let it go. It's like okay. Key West, everything goes. <laughs> all right, I didn't know what this was rated. Um, so so uh, after college, I went to Washington DC to interview with the State Department. Um, you know, the idea was that, you know, they would pay you six figures to sit in a cubicle and, and decode Arabic um, and, uh, and to learn it and, and to work, um, you know, in sort of the, the war against terror, which at the time was sort of interesting to me and in living in DC, but I soon found out that it was not the life for me at all and going through the process. Um, but I had a friend that was in uh, DC who said, who saw that I was miserable and, and said, you know, the National Geographic offices are right, right near the State Department. And, um, and I was like, oh, okay, like, you know, they'll ever give me a job. And he said, actually, I know someone there that would at least take a minute to meet with you if you want to go over there and check it out. And so, of course, I jumped on that opportunity. And that led to uh, years down in South America working uh, with the magazine. Um, that was about the time 2002 to 2004 was kind of um, the still the beginning of what we know as the internet <laughs> nowadays. Um, and so, you know, National Geographic was getting their website up and going and they needed content for it. And at the time I was a line producer. And so I would basically travel from city to city wherever they sent me. And a lot of it was snakes and frogs, uh, but a lot of it was really interesting stories. Um, and, and I really tended to focus kind of on Peru and Ecuador and in those areas on the Western coast. And uh, they sent me down a video camera and they said, um, you know, as long as you're going to these stories and you're meeting with the writers and photographers and you might as well shoot some stuff and send it back to us here in DC. At that time, the upload speeds were incredibly slow. And so actually I would shoot cards um, or tapes at that time. Like I was shooting on a Sony PD-150. So it had an actual like cartridge tape that you put down into it. And I would just send those on the planes back with these writers and photographers, no matter where they would fr- were from, it would probably get to DC faster than any upload speeds. So um, I started sending footage and then, you know, a couple months after my first time shooting, I noticed that I just really didn't like what they were doing with my footage. And so I asked them, you know, can I edit this? And 
uh, and they sent me down a better laptop than what I had. And, um, and I started editing and it was my first time editing a film. Um, you know, in college, high school and college, I had done some like random things and, and you, you, we used to use the VHS law, you know, jogging tools. Um, and, and I had edited actually some 16 and super eight on like the old Steinbeck, um, cutters and, uh, but it was certainly nothing like this, no digital, you know, uh, linear, nonlinear editing system. And so uh, before I knew it, I was editing uh, over a hundred pieces a year. I mean, it was, it became extraordinary the amount of, of pieces that I was editing because I would just do little one-offs. It would be one minute, five minutes, 10 minutes. And then suddenly I'd have like a 30 minute thing that I would do for them. And then, um, and it just continued like that for a couple of years. At that time, they sent me to the Galapagos uh, Islands where I was kind of stationed for a year. And um, that was just an extraordinary time. I mean, to be in the Galapagos Islands and to be kind of the point person for Nat Geo. And um, I was kind of, I became sort of the point person for a lot of different companies, NHK out of Japan, uh, Discovery, Travel, uh, you name it, they were getting in touch with me, which I ended up sort of teaching me how to become a point person for like the Florida Keys later on. But um, any, any production that came in, into the Galapagos Islands went under heavy scrutiny by the Galapagos National Park on where they were standing, uh, you know, uh, where they would shoot, where they were able to go to, could they spend the night on an island? Because, you know, 90% of these islands are uninhabited and, and obviously they're like the jewel of the world's ecosystem. And so uh, touching anything, breathing wrong on a plant is, is uh, you know, out of bounds. And so uh, when I was living down there, uh, I was just shooting a ton of, of videos. And then it, that kind of moved into shooting a commercial for Wild Aid, um, which in turn ended up turning into PSAs that I was shooting for the Ecuadorian government. Uh, I would go out on these extraordinary nighttime hunts. You know, the, the Ecuadorian uh, Navy is the only Navy in the world that's allowed to fire on you if you are even within their uh, Marine Reserve. Um, and so the, the Navy and the Coast Guard have like submachine guns mounted on the front of their boats. I mean, it's hardcore stuff. And we would go yeah. out and like, we you would know, go I, out. Can you, can you give yeah. us a little bit of background while you're saying that? about so, the Galapagos, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, yeah. it so, is Earth Week right now. So oh, yeah, that's kind of important. So, yeah, so so the Galapagos is the largest marine reserve in the world. Um, uh, you know, it's the largest um, uninhabited island in the world, Fernandina Island. Uh, you know, there are more uh, animals per square kilometer than anywhere else in the world. So it's the most biodiverse area uh, that you can find. Um, and in the marine reserve, it's equally under the water. Basically, it's it's the same. It's more fish species than anywhere else in the world, and it's the confluence of three different um, currents. One coming kind of up from the uh, Antarctic, which um, is uh, brings all the penguins that you see like in the Galapagos up, um, and a lot of cold weather fish. And then um, you know currents coming down from Mexico on the west side. Um, and then clean water coming in from the Pacific. And so this confluence is just makes it very nutrient rich and uh, every fish species you could think of is right there. So 
because of that, the Ecuadorian government created the National Marine Reserve, I believe back in 1975, something like that. Um, it's uh, a world heritage site, but the problem is overfishing. Um, and because it's so biodiverse, you have a lot of uh, Chinese companies that hire uh, Central American workers for like a dollar a day, not even sometimes 50 cents a day, will buy the boats out of South uh, of Central America uh, and then they'll come down to the Galapagos and they'll spend months there fishing. Um, and the loads that they will get, you know, will provide their family and extended family enough money for two to three years. And so it's a very lucrative thing that you can do as a Central American. Um, they don't hire really out of South America because there's a, sort of a, a kinship that the Ecuadorians and Peruvians and um, everyone on the West Coast Chileans have with the Galapagos. And so they wouldn't dare kind of hire um, out of that area. But, uh, you know, they'll come down and they fish out. They use long nets, which catch basically everything. So dolphins, whales, like you name it, things that they're not even trying to catch. Uh, and then they scrape the bottom uh, for sea cucumbers. There's a sort of wild myth uh, in China and also in Japan as well that if you eat sea cucumbers, it, it sort of works as an aphrodisiac, uh, which is completely not true, um, but it's a delicacy over there. And, and it really ruins the ecosystem because sea cucumbers are basically the filter of the Galapagos of that National Marine Reserve. So because of that, and because the Galapagos is such a large tourism industry, um, the Ecuadorian government has really shut down on that. And, and these illegal fishing uh, companies don't care at all at all and they go in and a lot of them have uh, machine guns as well. And will, um, I mean, I, when I say machine guns, I mean like fully loaded automatic, you know, uh, 90 millimeter, like massive bullets that can pierce through the hulls of boats. Um, you know, they're armed to the teeth and they will fight back against the Ecuadorian Navy. Um, so uh, it's, it's a war down there. I, I can't put it any other way than it is flat out war. And so there have been so many times that we were on boats with bullets piercing the sides of, of these Navy boats uh, where they would tell us to get down kind of into the inner sanctum of the boat. Um, there were nighttime gunfires where you would see bullets skipping off of the top of the water. Uh, these sort of just flashes going off the top of the water. Um, it was insane and, and, and they would hunt them down. I mean, these Navy units are using top GPS. A lot of the new boats that they're fishing with are using like graphite hulls um, to not be as detected. I mean, it's, it's, it's literally on the level of like cocaine uh, smuggling. And so uh, that, was, that was a major thing that I covered uh, for years down in the Galapagos. And, um, and then something extraordinary happened. Um, I was sick of living in the Galapagos um, and, and there was a sort of disillusionment to it as well uh, because there was a, uh, you, you, you tend to think um, that there are these tiny, tiny islands in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, we could at least save those islands. And we're not, we're not. Um, there are every there's everything from government intervention on construction to overpopulation issues to illegal fishing 
to oil spills. I mean, you just can't imagine that like these tiny islands, we like that humans can't even save this sort of most biodiverse, tiny piece of the world, we can't even not mess that up. And it became so sad and so deeply hurtful. And the fact that, you know, you would do all of these things and nothing helped and it just got worse and worse and worse over years. And at that point, I sort of realized that my time had run out in the Galapagos. Um, and I was, this was in December, um, and I was a couple weeks away from uh, coming back to the States for the first time in years uh, to visit my parents for Christmas. And so I was in this town called Puerto Ayora, and this is the sort of one of the capitals of the Galapagos. And um, uh, I, it was a very strange town because the, cruise ships were mand mandated to leave every day by 3 p.m. And so at 3 p.m. the town emptied out of tourists. They all left the Galapagos National Park where like the oldest turtle is, George, and, um, and, and uh, they would go on their boats off to another island. So at, at 3 p.m. every day uh, the town emptied out and there were only a couple other white boys like myself that lived on the island, a couple of Swiss scientists that I knew uh, that lived there and worked at the Charles Darwin Foundation and um, we were all kind of friends and stuff like that. Well, one day, uh, this is like a week away from leaving, I'm walking down the street in, Port in Puerto Ayora and um, I see these four somewhat overweight white dudes just walking down the street. And, and that was odd just on its own. Uh, but one of them, I looked at him and I was like, God damn it, I know who this, I, I know this guy. I don't know from where, but I know this guy. And I kept looking at him as he was walking down the street and they kind of went into this little like bodega that doubles as a pizza place at night. And, um, and I was totally uh, not inconspicuous. I was kind of like walking down the street, looking in and uh, looking at them sitting at this table. And they kind of got driven. They would kind of like weirdly look at me, but this guy, I just knew from somewhere and I, so I kind of walked in and I said hi to the owner who I knew and then I was kind of scouting them and at that point they were kind of we were making so much eye contact that it would have been weird had I not gone up to them. So I went up to this guy and I said, um, you know, excuse me, like, do I look familiar to you because you look really familiar to me. I don't know where we know each other from, but and he said, um, I, I don't know. He said, what's your name? I said, Quincy Perkins. And he said, doesn't ring a bell. I said, what's your name? He said, Russell Crowe. Oh, 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 oh. And I went, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That's you, isn't it? That's you. And my voice went up like ten octaves, and uh, and he was like, "Do we know each other?" And I was like, "Nah, I uh, I don't think so. I don't think we've ever met." And sitting to his left was Peter Weir, uh, oh. director of Dead Poets Society and Truman right. Show, and. Um, and then uh, a guy named Alan Curtis, who was a first AD, who's done like Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter. I mean, like every big massive uh, sort of sci-fi franchise. And they said, you know, what are you doing here? And I said, oh, I have been working for the last couple of years with the Galapagos National Park. And that geo is the sort of, you know, interdisciplinary thing between the two organizations. And, and they were like, oh, that's fascinating. And tell us about it and blah, blah, blah. And so I ended up sitting with them and, and talking with them and having a beer and pizza. And, and they said, so do you speak Spanish? I said, yeah, fluently. And, they, and Peter Weir said, uh, look, you know, um, we just fired my translator. He didn't work out for us. We were in Quito and, um, and I'm looking to hire someone that can be on set 
between me and kind of, because they were using an Ecuadorian crew, a lot of Ecuadorians on the crew, and they had to per the rules of the government there as well, especially being in the Galapagos. And so they said, would you want to stay with us and shoot this movie? And so at that, at that moment, when I met them, they were location scouting um, for a couple of weeks. And so we went through the Galapagos and I was kind of a tour guide for them and scout for them as well. A guy named Michael McCann was the location manager and I helped them kind of scout locations for a movie they were making called Master and Commander. Oh, I love that movie. Wow. Yeah. So, um, so they location scouted and then they said, Hey, we're going to be back in a month to shoot this. Would you want to work on it? And I was like, okay, great. So I ended up just like literally staying like right here, like boxes behind me, like just like that with my clothing in the Galapagos. And, um, and they ended up coming back a month later and we shot for six months. Um, oh, wow. And, and I ended up becoming everything from a location manager. And I was the sort of the liaison between the Galapagos National Park and the, and the, and the production unit. Um, and to everything from like script supervisor because it's, they, the master commander takes place in the pre-Napoleonic Wars and uh, Darwin is post-Napoleonic Wars. And so there were errors in the script, which you can imagine was a very intimidating thing for me to go up to Peter Weir and say, look, you know, I." like this, I mean, this is a $300 million film. And I was like, you know, the scientist is actually calling these animals by the wrong name. He's called, because when Darwin got down to the Galapagos, he renamed like 95% of the animals um, in his journal on the Beagle. And, and so uh, I had to go up to Peter Weir. There's one scene in particular. And I said, you know, uh, Paul Bettany's character was saying, um, is actually not calling these and he was like is, that, is this right is it you know and I would say yeah you know and I can show you the evidence and stuff like this and he was like oh my god and we have to make changes to this and I had no idea and of course that makes sense and and you know and and I was just sitting there like what am I doing um but yeah I mean it was it was wild and and you know there were moments like sitting on the back you know Russell Crowe had his own kind of yacht there his own boat and uh you know sitting on the back of his boat while he was playing guitar having drinks at night with a sunset down like on Isabella Island and the there, there were moments that I was just like what what's happening here um and uh so the and, and so when they were finished they ended up shooting they went down to Mexico to the Baja Fox studios where Titanic was shot and a bunch of other films and and we ended up shooting there for a while and then Peter Weir said um his assistant was a guy named Andy Welch who I became really good friends with. And Andy Weltman was then moved on. He actually ran the Pinewood Studios um, for a long time, but he was leaving Peter Weir as an assistant to do that. And Peter Weir said, would you want to work with me uh, on a couple upcoming projects? Um, and so I moved to LA and I, and I became an assistant for Peter Weir for two years. Um, wow. And I kind of just would sit in his office with him and, and look at scripts and, you know, take naps and have <laughs> philosophical conversations. And, um, you know, and, and I just basically became best friends with this man who I just completely adore through and through. He's, um, you know, like a father figure to me almost now. Um, but being able to sit there and, you know, talk with him about one-on-one um, -on -one with like, you know, how he made Dead Poets Society, um, or, or Witness with Harrison Ford, which is one of my favorite films. You know, it was just extraordinary. Um, and, uh, 
And that's sort of how I got my start into that's a long way of explaining how I got my start into the film industry was because I thought I knew who Russell Crowe was. Yeah, so that's you, uh, that's the Hemingway. Or I thought the Hemingway Russell, way of starting <laughs> Russell to the Crow industry. Who I was actually is what I should say. And you know right. what? It's it's funny when you said that. I, I made that mistake one time with this actor, uh, Wendell Pierce, who's one of my favorite actors. Yeah. And so we were at this event for the American Black Film Festival, like their launch event. And yeah. I was and I was like, hey, I know you. And you know, he looked at me probably like. Yeah, of course you know me. I'm Wendell Pierce. And, and, you know, I kept talking to him and I was like, okay, you know, have a great time. And then the next day I was a moderator on a panel mm. and it was Vivica Fox, Wendell Pierce and right. um, Ronald Lane. So then right. in, in walks Wendell Pierce and I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, oh, wait, that's Wendell Pierce. Oh yeah. my God. Yeah, and it was funny yeah. because, you know, down in, in, in the uh, in, in South America, living down there, there were literally only like two things at that time in the early 2000s that were on TV. One was reruns of Friends in Spanish, uh, and then the other were Russell Crowe movies. And so, <laughs> wow. firstly, it was like because I'd watched them and, and then I was kind of in the process of working down there and, had, and my brain could never have connected right. that this person would then be in the Galapagos. It made sense right. that... Or as I knew who this guy was, we probably crossed paths somewhere, you know. Um, but yeah, they used to they used to give me a lot of shit afterwards, you know. Uh, they like they would make this recurring joke whenever I was around of like, do I look familiar to you? Do you know who? I am? <laughs> well, at least I didn't have to hang out with Wendell Pierce over and over right. and over again. But, uh, yeah, yeah. So um, yeah. So uh, JL, you were going to say something. Sorry. No, I was just going to say that it's a, incredible that you had to go all the way to the Galapagos to have this Hollywood story, yeah. Uh, which then kind of brought you full circle back to LA. But I'm just curious, like during this whole time you're working on this big Peter Weir, Russell Crowe movie, are you still engaged with Nat Geo or have you, did you no, have to leave so I that quit. Yeah, and in fact, I quit several months before that because um, I was sort of going to write the next great American novel. That was my idea. I, I anyway. never, never wrote a word. <laughs> Uh, needless to say, on any pages of paper, but um, that the idea was going to live in the Galapagos for a few months and, you know, write this incredible, like, Susan Sontag, volcano lover type, you know, story of some sort. And then, anyways, it never happened. But then Sounds I got to like you were too from, busy. So, yeah. Um, but, you know, it was it was really extraordinary because um, uh, it was diving into the deep end of the pool. You, I mean, we had visual effects super three visual effects supervisors alone from ILM. Um, you know, you had uh, you know Peter Weir, Alan Curtis, an extraordinary lineup of actors, um, and and it was like I was right next to Peter Weir. I mean, I wouldn't leave his side. That was kind of the thing I was told not to do was not leave his side because basically how it would happen on these and 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 again I knew nothing and so being put up at like the number one most expensive movie of that uh, year, um, I didn't go up through the process of like independent films, $5 million films, $20 million films, even $100 million. I was at $300 million film. So it was, it was not real in a sense. I was looking at a process that a percentage of a percentage of a percentage of people in the film industry get to actually see. Yep. So it was weird because then from there I had to kind of step back towards independent filmmaking because 
you know, it would, I would be on set like in LA on an independent film and it would be like, um, you know, like I, I would be asking like, you know, you know, where the handful of like set designers are. And they were like, it's, you know, Veronica over there is <laughs> and visual effects and catering. Um, are you looking you know. down on us? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, but that's what it was like. I felt bad because I, I didn't know any better. I didn't know anything. Right. So, you know, when I was in, um, but it was extraordinary. It was magical because I saw this just incredible machine at work. Um, you know, Warner Brothers and Universal had to team up together because it was such a large budget that these two studios combined to make Master and Commander. Um, and uh, and then seeing sort of the visual effects too, um, you know, how they would shoot plates and, and understanding that process of, um, and this is in the early 2000s. And so they didn't have, you know, what they have now in terms of like understanding lighting structures and taking down you know, what power certain lights are at and, and, and putting those into a computer now. It was all kind of handwritten and they were taking a lot of photographs on set, things like that. Um, but to be right next to Peter and see his kind of process and, and how he would talk with actors too, it was like, it was like standing in the, in the box with A-Rod and, 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 like, and, and not only was he batting, but he was telling you what he was thinking at the same time. Wow. So, you know, thinking like, okay, he's probably going to throw a fastball or a curveball here. And you would hear this, you know, you would hear Peter Weir talking with um, Russell Boyd, who was the, was the cinematographer, and saying, um, you know, look, uh, you know, this is kind of the idea that I'm looking for here. And you could tell that they'd worked for years of pre-production talking over these things and, um, and then being on set and kind of, you know, pulling audibles and, and relighting things or making things look different. And then, and then, you know, I would stand right next to him when he was talking with like Russell Crowe and Paul Bettany and, and giving them direction and telling them. And, and you start to see that at that level, you know, and I think we've all had this experience that it's almost like they're in this sort of Jedi mind, like the, the more, the higher you are at that level of operating, the less they're saying, you know? So it was just like, yeah. the words here, they, everybody was very confident, knew exactly what to do. Um, and they could really create these moments of magic. Um, I remember there was one scene in particular, we were shooting on this lava field, um, uh, which is just an insane thing to say. But anyways, we were shooting on a lava field with uh, Paul Bettany um, and some of the other characters. And, um, and Paul Bettany did this extraordinary thing. And it's a very simple scene. They kind of are sitting down, taking a break. Um, the idea is that in this scene, uh, this, their sort of, their, their mission on this boat is to find this enemy ship and kill them. Uh, and they kind of take a break in the Galapagos. And this scientist, it's like his one minute at, like to be on these islands that are amazing and yet he's got to hurry up, right? Uh, and get back on the boat so they can go back into the war. So he does this extraordinary thing where he just kind of sits there and looks around. And he can feel this impending doom of like, I've got to leave here in a minute. This like, like, like a kid being at Disney World and the parents going, okay, 10 more minutes. Um, and he just in about, you know, they took about 20 takes and every single one, and I'm not lying, I'm not exaggerating, every single one was magic in a different way. I've never seen anything like it. The way that he could as an actor bring out different emotions just through his eyes and different little takes 
And then you went, I see why these guys, now I see why this is not a fluke and these guys are at the top of their game. Um, and this is why they'll give you 300 million to make a movie. Um, and then they had to pick one of those scenes, just one to put in the movie. So Yeah, but you know, when you're dealing with that type of money and you know, you have to move fast and you have to do things in such a, an efficient way, right? you know, having that shorthand instead of the laborious way really allows for that magic that you're talking about to happen. So I can understand, but um, you got divorced from that magic a little bit and brought back down to earth. You're in LA, yeah. um, you're Peter Weir's assistant for two years. Is that right? Yeah, two years, yeah. So you're going into that second year or the end of that second year, mm. what happened to? So, so Master and Commander was sort of seen as a failure, which is, um, unfortunate because it's anything but. I mean, people look back on that film. I think it's, you know, got one of the highest ratings from critics ever. I mean, it's it's it just at in that same year it was coming out against the very first Lord of the Rings. So it was like, how are you going to compete with that? And so it didn't get the time that it deserved. Had had it been had it been alone that year, um, it would have. You know, it was nominated still for eight Academy Awards. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it was still had its moment, but it didn't come. Lord of the Rings swept everything basically that year. Um, so, but it was seen as a box office uh, bomb. Um, you know, I think it was 350 million at the end of everything to make. And I think it pulled in just over a hundred. Um, so Peter Weir over those two years kind of struggled. He had a film with Tom Cruise that was kind of getting set up and then it just kind of went on and months turned into a year and then another year went, but you know, you know how it works in the industry. Yeah. And, um, and at that time, I sort of real, realized that my time had run out with him too, in a sense of I couldn't really help him with anything and he didn't really need me for much and the hours kind of go in, in, in the office kind of, and he flew back to Australia for a couple months at a time. And so I was working in LA just on different little sets. Uh, and then I kind of made my own way there. I got um, a job um, at a, a production company called the Lab Entertainment Group, um, which was a really interesting process for me because I basically learned everything not to do at that point. I went from like one extreme of like the most amazing thing to a production company that just failed I mean, everything from like drug use with the executives to like stolen ideas to plagiarism to uh, fake promise. I mean, you name it, it ran the gamut of like the worst of the worst in LA, but I'm actually glad I had that experience. Uh, and I was there for about a year uh, when I got a call from a friend in Key West who said, um, we're thinking about starting a, a cinema down here. Um, and at that time, uh, there was no, um, we had a regal cinema that only had two screens in it. So they would show like Batman and, you know, whatever the big thing was, but there was no independent cinema. And there was a very wealthy uh, philanthropist in Key West who wanted to put up like $5 million to start an uh, independent cinema called the Tropic Cinema. And uh, my friend who was ahead of it, uh, this process, Michael Shields, called me up and he said, um, and at that time, there was no, uh, DCP, this is uh, still 35 
millimeter platters. Um, he said, you don't happen to know how to splice film. And it just so happened that I had learned some more in LA about how to do that. Um, I had worked part-time at the Arclight Cinemas uh, right after I had stopped with Peter Weir because I had no money left. And, uh, and I, or Arclight Cinema. Yeah, and I thought a projectionist job would be great. Um, yeah. So yes, I did. And, and I said, yeah, I do. And he said, would you want to move back to Key West and we'll make it worth your while and, and you can help us open up this independent cinema. And, and there were other parts of that too. They wanted me to like teach some classes and, and do other things at the cinema to kind of bring people into the, into the mold there. And, um, and so that's what brought me back to Key West. Um, and that was in uh, 2009. Uh, I moved back full time uh, and opened up the Tropic Cinema. And, um, and that was a whole different problem that took me kind of in a whole different direction. But, you know, during throughout this whole time, even though I'm telling you kind of about these experiences, when I was out in LA, I started shooting narratives as well. So I'd done, you know, hundreds and hundreds of short documentaries for Nat Geo. And, and then I'd worked on a couple like kind of, uh, uh, you know, um, 30 minute, 45 minute uh, type things as well. Um, but when I got to LA, I started shooting a lot more narrative stuff and scripting out and I had the sort of time to make my own things and I had a team there. So um, throughout this whole time, I sort of was developing as a filmmaker as well. And when I moved back to Key West, my immediate thing was to say, okay, who here else, who else here does film? And it was like crickets. Like nobody, nobody was doing anything except for one guy named Billy Chimino, who's like a world famous art director. He had done The Wire um, for HBO. He worked on Sopranos, like all this stuff. And he lived in Key West. And I knew him since I was like a kid and my mom was friends with him and stuff like that. And that was it. It was like Billy Chimino and me. And that was like it, that's it, literally it. I mean, um, and so the idea was kind of with the Tropic Cinema that we were going to develop filmmakers. Um, there was a great story from the 1970s in Sweden. Uh, there was a sort of government run program uh, that the prime minister of Sweden decided he was going to put a tennis racket in the hands of every child over the age of 12 in school in Sweden. And um, and suddenly about 10 years after that initiative, all of the top tennis players in the world were Swedish. And, and that story stuck with me and I sort of took that to Key West and thought if I can just put a effing camera into the kids' hands, I don't care, something will happen. You know, one of these people will link onto it. And so that's what I started to do down there. And I started to develop this kind of like small institute with Key West High School and uh, middle school. And um, there's only one high school down there and one middle school <laughs> and, um, and putting, you know, cameras at that time, it was like, what was it? The Canon XL1 or something like that. And, yeah. you know, just putting cameras into their hands uh, like Sony HD cams and saying, shoot, and it looked like horrible, but it was like, and, and these kids would come through and 90% and of them didn't like it, but then there were a couple that did. Um, and now there's like five filmmakers out of Key West that have like come up through the ranks. Four of them are out in LA, one's in New York um, and they're doing their thing. And, it, and there's, a, there's, a, there's a magic that happens. There's a truthfulness to what they did in Sweden. Um, and so, 
yeah, I don't know where I'm going here with that story, but, but no, no, yeah. no. But that no, that that's great though, because yeah. that's parallel, you know, with the evolution that you had yourself. So, yeah. um, and because and that, of that, and because of that, it was interesting because you know we had like one basic set of making a film equipment. So we had like one boom, one mic, you know, a couple cameras. We had like two black flags. Uh, we had a couple redheads um, and like uh, an one airy skylight, like the early version of, or it wasn't a skylight, it was a, um, oh, I can't remember what they were called now. Anyways, so we basically had like one set to make a film. And so everybody would kind of help. It was like, you know, being in college or something. Right. Um, and so, and, and it was really about how can you make a film with the least amount of stuff that you need? And so there was really much more of an emphasis on story. And so even though I was putting cameras into the hands of these filmmakers, it really, then I realized, oh wait, that means nothing. Um, it's, like, it's like the tennis analogy, a racket means nothing uh, if you don't have a good partner to play against. Mm -hmm. You know, you just hit the ball over the net, you're not gonna, to nobody, you're not gonna be. And so it was about creating good story. And so the Tropic Cinema allowed me a small budget and, um, and this is kind of the inklings of the first Key West Film Festival. And I thought, you know, I really wanna start bringing some screenwriters down here to teach these kids, but I needed a good excuse to do so. And so I was like, I can't just bring them down one off. So I decided let's start a week of film, you know, to kind of like do the, you know, show these kids movies. We'll show it to an older audience too. Um, but at the same time, we'll kind of use the guise of like a screenwriter coming down to talk to 60 year old people and then we'll shuffle him next door and then he can talk with these kids about screenwriting. Um, and then, and, and that's sort of the very like <laughs> sly way that I got away <laughs> with selfishly bringing down people that I loved as well to talk with them. Yeah, but you know what? I don't think that that's selfish actually because it is, you know, you looking out for the greater the greater good of everyone. It's not yeah. like you just brought them down and then you didn't do the other part. Right, so, right. Yeah. yeah. And now the Key West, again, I just had a film in the Key West, the Key West Film Festival and it's an extraordinary festival. I didn't really, really get to, now I did get to really experience the Key West Film Festival just as someone, you know, I chaired the film board for Miami-Dade County. So I kind of went down under, you know, that auspice. And, you know, I just had a great time hung out with Stephen Bauer. He's wild, yep. <laughs> you know, yep. and, and just really had a good time, a great time at the festival this yep. time, you know, because of, um, and they did, a, they did a fine job in terms of adhering to protocol, you know, because, because of COVID, but it is, a, it's, it's really um, an incredible festival in that it feels like a part of the ecosystem of everything there in Key West, which makes it truly unique. I mean, every festival has its, unique signature, but this one, the Key West Film Festival really felt different, you know, because of the background and, and now knowing probably because you planted that seed, so. Yeah. And I think, you know, a, a lot of that is, is due to Brooke Christian, who is the president of the, you know, board and Mike Tuckman, who's our programmer. Um, I mean- Oh, he was, yeah, he was great. He was yeah, great credit for creating something just incredible. You know, I was just kind of a small piece of that, but um, you know, one of the things that we decided early on was that we didn't want to be just another 
film festival and we needed to find kind of what our niche was. We knew that in the very long term, we didn't have, we had to bring people in, right? Because we're Key West. So we knew that we had to be a destination film festival. And in order to do that, you've got to have something above and beyond special. You know, if you operate in somewhere like Jacksonville, you can be a run of the mill film festival because people are going to come out. You're going to still get thousands of people to come to your events. In Key West, um, everybody's working three jobs. So nobody goes to movies. And so how do you get people out, not only within Key West, but also to come down uh, to the film festival. And that's when in our discussions, we knew that we had to do something really, um, we had to take a chance and we had to do something very exotic. And that's when we had all came up with the idea of making a film festival that surrounded film critics. Um, we all had kind of some different uh, good friends, but Tuckman was best friends with Eric Cohn, um, who was a managing editor at IndieWire. And, um, and the discussion kind of went like this, like we talked with Eric and, and said, hey, do you want to be on the board? And we're thinking about doing this with film critics. And, and in the very first year, we had like the top 10 film critics in the world because he knew all of them. And because we're in November in Key West, it's not a hard sell. We weren't twisting anybody's arm like, hey, do you want to fly down to this, you know, Caribbean island in November uh, and be put up in these great hotels and have drinks at bars and talk about movies? It's like, uh, so um, that was kind of our thing. And we took a big chance that first year and it just paid off. And, and what we realized sort of after the fact, because we're not this smart to have thought about it beforehand, uh, but we realized that it was the best PR we could have hoped for too, because now the top 10 film critics in the world were going off after the film festival and writing about the Key West Film Festival in major newspapers. I mean, the first year we had Time Magazine, Wall Street Journal, New York Times, LA Times, Rolling Stone, IndieWire. It was like, variety so you know we we covered all the bases and suddenly it was like key west film festival key west film festival and we were only in our third year at that point when we had decided to do that so that was sort of a um that that was the big breaking point for the key west film festival and and how i know that it will be around forever now because we've sort of taken care of our film critics we love them genuinely there is a real emphasis on writing about film um you know we've had uh, different workshops about like Pauline Kael and some of these other amazing um, screen, uh, film critics and, and what they bring and, and how the industry is changing. You know, whereas beforehand people used to read a review before they went to see a movie to see if it was good. Um, now it's sort of changed into after the fact they're analyzing these films more. People want to go read film critics works after they've seen a movie to see how to talk about it better. Um, or um, they want to go find a critic that has something interesting to say about the industry now. And so it's taken on different forms and that's what we're looking at now. And we're mixing that with filmmakers like you, Kevin, that come in and have great work and can mingle with these, uh, film critics and get on a radar at a very low level in a sense, you know, like Eric Cohn, you would never be able to have, let alone talk to him in the streets. And now you're having a drink with him at the Green Parrot at 3 a.m. next to some bums, uh, you know, what better setup is there? <laughs> That's part of the magic. That's part of the magic. I mean, you know, it was virtual this year, but you could still feel the presence. When I first got down there, I got there just in time for the, the critics panel. 
and, yeah. it, and and it was tremendous because you know not only are they talking about films that um you know the general public already knows but they're talking about films that are you know making the festival circuit and films that people had not seen yet but then, you know, you see those films come out and you remember what the critics had to say about the films as they as they come out. And something right. really cool, you know, I asked them, you know, what are some of your favorite documentaries of the year? And um, I was happy to hear Kareem Tapsch and Mucho Mucho More a couple a couple of times. You know, we, we uh, interviewed Kareem in Jan or early, you know, in, in January before that whole snowball with mucho, mucho more. And he's a friend of mine for many, many years, but you know, it kind of brings it around full circle. You know, it's like, okay, yeah. our Miami people are, you know, our South Florida people, they're talking about our South Florida people. The critics also helped to put the Key West Film Festival on the map. You planted the seed for the Key West Film Festival. So there's all love there. So that, that, that's tremendous, but you, yeah. A really cool thing. Kareem was actually on board with us really early on. He was a, a judge of short films for the QS Film Festival the first three years. Oh wow. And 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 he was instrumental in our early discussions about how to form that film festival as well. One of the sort of early jokes was, uh, you know, down in Key West, it was always like the Miami people, like, how do we, you know, like talk with them and, you know, stuff like that. And, and, and Kareem was like, don't worry about that. They'll come to you. Like you just create the right thing. And like, they'll start shifting down. And it's, and it's true, you know, to see like the amount of people coming down from Miami uh, filmmakers, you know, we had the big Borscht present presence a few years ago. Um, you know, we've talked with, um, all sorts of different, like just amazing filmmakers here out of Miami that have come down and shared their experience in Key West. And, and it's a good little getaway, you know, and it's, yeah. it's also a reminder of the great locations that we've got down there um, and the great community that we have. And, and of course, the great stories. Yeah, and I wanted to, uh, in full disclosure, we won a special jewelry award for uh, excellence in filmmaking. So, you know, full disclosure, I'm not pumping it up because of that, but because it is such a yeah, you a, are Kevin. <laughs> because it's such a tremendous, you know, it's such a tremendous festival, and I recommend everyone, you know, if if you have a film to enter the Key West Film Festival. Yeah. So, but what I did want to move into because we've already hit what is that five things that you've done four yeah. four things that well, it's five, right? Wow, you know, like what an evolution. Yeah. But <laughs> you have done a lot more than just these five things so you're yeah. there at the key west film festival you're also doing your own films your own work your own projects how do you move and evolve into i mean i know like bloodline came and yeah shot there and, and, and changed a lot of the environment yeah but there weren't a lot of big productions shooting there um that we would know of no, and it was, you know, we would randomly get some movie would come down and shoot, you know, a sexual scene there. Um, we would get a lot of TV shows. I mean, every one you could think of, A&E, Discovery, Travel, PBS, a lot of Japanese television come down there. They were, they're fascinated with Ernest Hemingway. Um, and so, uh, you know, we would get a lot of German television channels that would come down there shooting about like the ghost stories we would get, um, yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of different productions came down there. And so I always had my hands kind of in something. And the Florida Keys is, is a, you know, it's 100, 
10 miles basically from Key West to Key Largo. And so, um, you know, it, there's a lot of area there to cover and I would get calls. It was, you know, funny because, you know, it takes two and a half hours to drive from Key West to Key Largo. And, um, and I would get calls like, oh, hey, hey, we're gonna be in Key Largo at one o'clock. You know, they call me at noon. We're gonna be there at one. Can you help us out with something? Because they just think all the keys are like a muddled bunch of islands or something. Um, and it was like, no, I can't, you know, get up there. But, but there was a lot, you know, Bloodline was up in Island Marauda. And so, you know, I worked on that a lot, but that was a two hour drive for me. So it's like, you know, that's, that's a hike to work every day. And I would stay up there when I, when I could, but, um, uh, you know, yeah, it, it's, uh, there are a lot of commercials that shot down there, which was actually some of the best stuff I've worked on, like Ford, Lamborghini shot over the Seven Mile Bridge, which was extraordinary. Um, we had a lot of like jewelry, fashion. Um, I then signed a contract for a couple of years with like Seventeen Magazine because they would come down there and shoot all the time on our beaches. A lot of photo shoots, uh, shoot in the Keys, which are basically the same thing as a film shoot. Um, you know, they're just stills instead of, of uh, action, but um, but the same kind of process. You have wardrobe, makeup, and logistics are all kind of the same. Um, and so, yeah, so I opened up a company called White Orchid Studios, and that was kind of a, a shell for production companies coming down to the Keys to feel good underneath of. And so we did everything from booking hotels, you know, to catering, to literally my mom would bake cookies sometimes, to, um, uh, you know, providing equipment when needed. Um, sourcing, being a line producer and sourcing stuff here out of Miami. Um, there were so many times where like, you know, we would have shoots and it would be like, uh, they would need, you know, an HMI. And it was like, okay, I'd call up Cine Video Tech and, and, and who was gonna drive it down, you know? And Egon would like tell me, oh, I've got this runner that can, you know, take this van, you know, and sourcing that down. Um, and it was just years and years of that. and and And, and I just worked on the outside for so long and had access so luckily to so many great um, people. Like I shot with um, like Mario Testino, the photographer. Yeah. Down and, and, and shot and I was right next to him helping him out. And so to see someone like that operating, yeah, just like the Peter Weir thing. And, and, um, and you start to take, I, you know, I, I'm one of those people that grabs, I think like, like you, uh, you know, you guys are like you grab like little nuggets here and there and store yeah. them where you can and use them in the future. And, um, and that's all it's been, you know, for my entire life is kind of working on the outside and making magic out of these lucky moments that I've had um, and kind of positioning, like, I don't know what, I'm totally gonna butcher that great phrase, but, you know, um, uh, being, you know, lucky is being in the right place at the right time and, and yeah. being prepared you know, or whatever it is. It, and, and, and that's what it is. It was just, I happen to be the only person in the Galapagos. I happen to be the only person in the Florida Keys. Uh, and so when they came down, I could do stuff for them. And then they felt like they could trade knowledge with me in a sense. Um, and, and that's how I've sort of grown as a filmmaker. So when I say it's an odd way to go, it's an odd way to go. When people ask me like, you know, like a lot of the kids in Key West would say, you know, what's the best way to get in the industry? I'd be like, I'm the, go, go think that you meet, you know, Russell Crowe. That's the only way that I can give you. <laughs> <in the industry. laughs> but there is no one straight shot. And right. I recommend everyone, you know, listen to every single interview. Well, 
it's not just because we have this podcast, but the people that we've interviewed, everyone has a different way of getting there. Perseverance has a lot to do with it. Yeah. You know, I started in front of the camera, so I never worked with Mario Testino, but, um, you know, I was with agencies like Ford and Wilhelmina and Boss and, you know, Major and, and those things. So, yeah. you know, I picked up a lot just in what you said is true. You're on the photo shoot. The photo shoots are similar. You know, these photographers are getting paid $100,000 a day, you know, and, and things like that. But you pick up that stuff. And then, you know, being an actor, you know, you're on set. A lot of people want to talk to, you know, you talk to the lighting person, you know, you talk to the electric, you talk to the grip, and they give you little nuggets of information. And then that helps you as you move forward. So 100%, I can understand that. You know, it was a lot of it was out of necessity. It was all a hustle, too, in a sense, yeah. because... Um, you know, uh, I was in Key West and, and I knew I wanted to do film. And so I wanted to get on every little project that was possible. Um, and, you know, the, the money wasn't great for years and years. Um, and so it was like, you know, just hustling and, and pulling together things wherever I could. And, and a lot of it, like I said, just came out of necessity. And we would shoot, you know, I've shot so many short films where I didn't have the equipment. I didn't have the actors. I didn't. Have, so what do I do? You know, how do I? um make something without anything yeah wow. yeah so I mean, so yeah jl sorry yeah i was gonna say that you know this is like so much great background just a good idea uh, and a color and a sense of who you are and this diverse like you said everything feels like it just kind of randomly happened but i think when you look back on your life probably you're gonna realize that all those connections were for a reason and they happened at the exact perfect time for the exact perfect reason in hindsight you know there's another right. saying uh, there's no one way to greatness. Greatness is the way. Uh, and like Kevin says, so many of the, the folks that we've been lucky enough to interview have such diverse origin stories, yet they all wind up somehow getting to where they feel like they needed to be. So yeah. that brings us to, I guess, the Miami leg of your journey, because now is, you're... Well, right? I, I did want to hear, because we had the first act, the second act, this is like a movie. It's like yeah. this swamps a movie. I want, the I want, third act. I want the big reveal in act three. Right, right, yeah, the, right. the third act. Because right. part of it happened in Key West. And then yeah. part of it happened now that you're here in Miami. Yeah. Sorry, spoilers. Quincy yeah. is in Miami now. But um yeah. so there's you know, there's a couple of things that big kind of tentpole moments that happened for my film career. Um, you know, because during all of this overview of kind of managing other things. I was making films as well, mainly short films, but I had a short film called Swingers Anonymous that we shot in the Redlands in Homestead um, that ended up getting accepted um, uh, to, to a part of the Cannes Film Festival called the American Express New Filmmakers Pavilion. Um, and so we, they, um, and that was in 2015 and that was kind of a big thing um, to, because that put me in touch with a lot of financiers, which as you know, is like 99% of filmmaking. So, um, so having that movie over there, even though it wasn't part of the official can, um, the pavilion, I'm not sure if you know the, the, the film festival well, but basically there's like the Lemire theater and then next to that are all the pavilions of the different, countries and those countries kind of show off what they're most proud of, uh, both short films and features. And uh, the American Express one is the, is the American um, 
pavilion. And so we were very lucky to be only one of 10 short films that they had accepted. Um, and, uh, and so we went over there, myself and the writer of the film, Jonathan Woods, and uh, had just an extraordinary moment. Um, but that kind of led to me shooting my first feature. Um, and that was Love and Youth, uh, which uh, premiered at the Miami Film Festival three years ago. Um, and uh, we had, <clears throat> that was an extraordinary uh, project because I knew I wanted to make, I had this script that I had written about these two kids, freshman year of college, um, studying marine biology and uh, one of them is like a foreign student from Cuba and the other one is an American girl from Kansas and I wanted her to like fall in love with him and he doesn't really want anything to do with her but he kind of just wants her around because he's lonely um, and it really messes up her head because she's feeling like she's attracted to him and in love with him and he is just kind of keeping her around for loneliness purposes um, and then there becomes this game of jealousy that they play off of each other to the point at which it snowballs and they not, neither one of them has control over their relationship anymore. Um, and the scripted, like I'd sent it off and it done uh, really well at a couple different like scripts, festival things and really good coverage had come back on it. Um, and I knew I wanted to shoot this movie, but again, how was I gonna shoot a feature film in Key West? Um, and so, I decided basically, and, and not really even thinking about like dogma rules or anything, but really just out of necessity, I had a Blackmagic pocket camera. I had a really beautiful vintage 50 millimeter piece of glass. Um, I had uh, a couple lights um, and I had two actors that basically were the entire movie. There were a couple extras, but no other like supporting characters or anything. And so um, I started, I basically was going to use non-actors and I went to the local high school to the drama club. I asked who the teacher thought were two of the best actors and she gave me a guy and a girl. Um, the girl ended up not really being what I was looking for. Um, and for about a year and a half, I tested, I screen tested, I'd shoot little like tiny things with different actors and stuff like that until I found the two actors that I really liked. Um, and they were both in high school. They were both seniors at QS High School and had never acted before, uh, but they were just brilliant. And um, I decided to shoot over the next six months, I was gonna shoot a film with one lens, no lights, no permits. Um, and that's what we did. We ended up shooting Love and Youth for $7,000 to get it in the can um, over the course of six months. And it was funny because they were high school students all the call sheets started at 2.30 p.m. Um, because I couldn't get them before that. And then like uh, Heather was a cheerleader as well. The really weird thing about the film and the really great thing about the film was that the two characters, Heather, the girl in real life, um, who I ended up calling Heather in the movie as well, just because it was easy to hear her own name. Um, uh, Heather was the most popular girl at QS High School. She's stunningly beautiful. She's a cheerleader. She had dated the high school quarterback. I mean, she was like the, you know, sort of mean girls. And she was mean. She was like kind of had an attitude and um, uh, she was difficult to deal with. But she had this thing where I shot a scene of her in a bus looking out the window and I told her, you know, I just want you to think about how mad this boy is making you. 
And I shot this scene of her face looking at this bus window in a screen test. And it was just so, there was so much depth to her. And I was like, I've got to use this girl. Well, on the other hand, oh, and in the movie, Heather plays a very, very, very shy, almost, almost deathly shy girl from Kansas who's got no friends, is kind of homely, afraid to talk. Um, and, then in, and then Ricardo, who plays Ivan in the movie, uh, Ricardo was this very quiet gamer boy, not uh, socially confident at all in real life. And in the movie, he's got to play this asshole. <laughs> like just, there are scenes in the movie where he just destroys the self-confidence of this girl uh, with one word. And he's got to have this sort of, you know, machismo and, and carry himself. And so they were playing exact opposites. Uh, and so during, they would go to school and she would be kind of this girl and, you know, sit and, and she would never talk with Ricardo. In fact, they were in the same class. And on the first day of shooting, Ricardo said, oh, hey, you know, they met and Ricardo, this is Heather and Heather, Ricardo. And he said, oh, hi, you know, I'm actually in your history class. And she said, oh, you are? <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, oh my God, this That's is a long shoot. And, yeah. uh, and, uh, and what's incredible is that over six months, you know, they would go to school and be these people that they are in real life. And then they would show up on set and have to completely throw away everything that they knew. Um, and they did an extraordinary job of it, but over six months, it changed them. And in fact, Heather ended up meeting this guy, an incredible guy. They had a baby. She writes poetry and goes to yoga classes. And Ricardo, on the other hand, has become this kind of like, his confidence is like, is so high now like he's such a like man now and like confident and and uh and i'm not giving myself all the credit for that but it certainly was the movie that helped them on the path to that um but it's Do just, a movie with quincy find your zen that's right that's right that's right it's been no but it was it was just an extraordinary process of you know we would go sometimes weeks without shooting um and it was very very difficult uh um, to sort of stay in character and working with non-actors. You know, the, the toughest thing that I found, non-actors are great. I will continue to work with non-actors for the rest of my life. I love getting someone new as long as they're interested in it. The problem and the big difference between non-actors and actors is that with non-actors, after about three months, they go, what am I doing this for? Yeah. Whereas with actors, you're paying them or they're interested in doing it and they'll do it for the moving long their, Yeah, moving their career but, yeah, one like of the other. Three months, after about three months, there was about five months of me just literally convincing them, look guys, like, please, we're getting so close to being done here. And I promise you this movie's almost over. And they would be like, I have cheerleading camp to go to. I, <laughs> like, I don't care about your dumb movie about teenage adolescent feelings. <laughs> 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 so you finished the film, your first feature, you know, yeah. congratulations on that. Um, you've, your first feature, yeah. screened at the Miami Film Festival. You're a feature director, full yeah. circle. Did you call up Peter Weir? Hey, I'm, <laughs> I'm in your league now. <laughs> I did. He watched the movie. He gave me some great notes in the edit as well, um, which uh -huh. is incredible. And I have a big thank you in the credits to him at the end of the film. Um, but he... Um, you know, he said to me multiple times, he said, it doesn't matter if you have 300 million, it doesn't matter if you have $7,000, 
um, you can make extraordinary good films. Um, you yeah. can make films that talk to people. Um, I think the thing about Love and Youth, what I then found out on the flip side of that and something I had never had uh, experience with is sort of the PR game. So once the film gets out, like we went to Telluride, we Love and Youth, it went to Napa Valley, it went to Miami Film Festival, it was nominated for three awards at Miami. It was, um, where else did it play? It played at Boston, where it was nominated for two. I mean, so it, it was a good film. I knew that it had legs, but I had no idea until that film how important a PR person is. Yeah. Um, you don't go anywhere without them. And, and even getting into film festivals. Yeah. Um, and so it was really, that was the one part, well, I mean, there are many parts I still don't understand about the film industry, but that certainly was a large part, something that I had never had any experience with. Yeah. Um, and then sort of realizing the game after the game. And, right. you know, the filmmaking is so weird because you have this whole pre-production process, which is an incredible uh, amount of your life. And then you have the shooting, which is an incredible amount of your life. And you think, oh, I'm done. And then you have post-production, which is a whole nother life of your film. And then you have the film festival circuit, which is a whole yeah. nother part of your life. And then you have distribution, which is a whole nother. And it's like, you know, you have to really um, be in it for the long haul. This is a yeah. marathon. And you have to really, as an independent filmmaker, know every process of it. Uh, there was, my stepfather had a really good, he went through, um, an incredible court case over years with his family. There was like an estate and his brother and him were at odds for like seven years uh, in a lawsuit. And, and he was constantly working on this lawsuit. And I would always think like, why is he working on this and not the lawyer? And he told me one day, and I asked him that one day and he said, you know, you have to do about 90% of the work with lawyers and let yeah. the lawyer in person. And it hit me. It was like, it was like <laughs> about the film industry. It was yeah. like, you have to do 90% of it, whether it comes to distribution, you yeah. better know what those contracts look like. You, when it comes to PR, you better know who, you better know the names of the PR agents that got the last three films into Sundance by first name. You better know who those people are. You got to yeah. do 90% of the work because, you know, it's so rare that you will make a film and then suddenly it just appears virally for like, and nobody's helped you. I don't know if that's even ever happened. <laughs> right. I had, the, I had the recent opportunity to work with a very famous YouTuber uh, named Teddy Baldessari, who does a YouTube channel about watches. And he's got like millions of viewers and stuff like this. And when you watch the videos, they're kind of just simple, like, you know, kind of shoots. And he hired me to help him shoot here in Miami on, a, on an episode he was doing. And he had like eight people behind the scenes. He had a PR agent. He had, um, I mean, you, it was like a full film thing. And, and, right. and it shows you behind the scenes in order to get to that level of like successful YouTuber, you have an army behind you. Yeah. Uh, this isn't just luck. It's like, and he has, he works with a company out of New York that also represents like Lady Gaga in, in terms of publicity. And so like, um, you know, there's no, it's, it's not a fluke. Um, and, and, and that was a big eye opener for me in the last three years is sort of the, the whole life after you make a film, I, I'm sorry, after that you even get into film festivals, yeah. I so many films into film festivals 
um, and wondered, okay, why isn't it, why am I not just being plucked out of the sky by somebody? Um, and that's not how it works at all. Yeah, you know, um, I it's brought- a rude, It's a rude awakening, but it's an important one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every step is work. It's equal, it's equal, an equal amount of work. You know, once the film is done, then it's the, all the, even as you enter the festivals, then it's the marketing that you do around that. And then that also helps to, you know, get your name out there and to get the film out there. Um, one thing that I thought of when you were talking about the festivals and maybe not a lot of people know this, or maybe a lot of people know this, but um, a few years ago in conjunction with the Miami Film Festival, we brought in Cheryl Boone Isaacs, um, who's a friend of mine. She was um, the head of the Academy for Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, the president at, at the time. So I spent days and days and days with her and we got to talking about festivals and she's like, well, I only go to maybe two or three festivals a year. And she said, the people who really know, you know, the insiders who really know the Telluride Film Festival is one of the festivals, you know, it's not as, has all the pomp and circumstance as Sundance, but you know, it still has the same quality of work. So that's the festival that a lot of people go to, to find new talent and new filmmakers and stay out of the hustle and bustle of the bigger film festivals. So- there's a great European festivals too. Um, you know, Visions de Real is like one of the top ones in the world and not many people know about it. But if you're a starting filmmaker um, that shot their first or second feature, uh, that it may be the best in the world that you could go to. The yeah. other problem is that, you know, one of the things I realized, I'd done so many shorts and I realized that it doesn't even matter if you have the number one short at a film festival, you're still lower on the totem pole than the last feature film. And that makes sense <laughs> because, you know, there's so much money that's put into feature films that film festivals usually give priority to feature film filmmakers and I get that and they're usually bigger productions stuff like that but I had gone to Sundance um many for many years and um and had actually worked with like artist services at Sundance Institute and things like that and um one thing I noticed was just like short filmmakers just get law you know they go there with an amazing amount of um optimism and it's almost always undercut by just the fact that there's a feature film in front of you and that was when and and when that idea hit me, which was about five years ago, I went, I gotta, I'm gonna stop. If I'm doing a short film, it's only for local regional film festivals and that's it. And I'm not gonna travel anywhere. Cause even if it got into Sundance, honestly, and I'm telling you this absolutely truthfully, I don't even, I will never submit a short film to Sundance ever in my life again, because it's just no, first of all, there's like a 0.1% chance of it getting in. Um, and I'd rather spend the hundred dollars on that submission on taking someone in LA out to lunch. Um, <laughs> but, but doing a feature film just catapults you up on top of that in terms of publicity, yeah. in terms of eyes on your work. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, I can't recommend it enough for people to go out and shoot a $7,000 short uh, feature film. I mean, it's Rob like- Robert Rodriguez. I think that was the exact amount yeah. of- uh his first feature so yeah yeah there's a weird oh and i when i took that film festival when i took that film around to different film festivals i talk about the budget sometimes 
And it, there's this weird thing around $7,000. Maybe it's the Robert Rodriguez thing, but they're like, it, it seems like for some reason, every you can shoot a two person feature film for around seven. I don't know why that is the amount of time it takes or, but that number always kept popping up. Um, but yeah, I can't recommend it enough. And, you know, uh, you know, the dogma way of doing it, even though it wasn't exactly dogma, but, um, you know, I didn't use a soundtrack. Um, all the clothes were clothes that the kids had. Um, I used one lens. So I was either backing up or moving forward, no sticks. It was all handheld on shoulder mount the entire wow. thing. Um, there were no establishing shots. Uh, there was no lighting of any sort. I used bounce boards, but it was all location scouting for places that I liked the lighting of. I mean, that's okay. The Revenant was shot with all incidental lights. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. shooting a magic tower was yeah. great. One of the things that you learn uh, shooting uh, nature videos for Nat Geo is that uh, when you're in South America is that, um, and you're not waiting on a crew is that you have dusk and dawn and you've got these two magic hours uh, and those become your times. I was shooting everything at dusk and dawn down in South America because you've got just great lighting and I didn't have like big lights. And you know, when you're shooting a frog sitting on a tree branch in Argentina, it's like, you know, and you, and it's like, when am I gonna shoot this frog? The best time is during these two and, and, and magic hour just, um, is like your whole shoot. Uh, I can't, you know, you wake up and you shoot and then you, you know, have your day and then you go shoot in the evening. And, and I became so used to that process that doing it during the feature film was great because I could get these kids before class sometimes. They were high school yeah. students, remember, so they didn't like yeah. waking up early. But I could get them before school and then I could get them. And I wrote the script around that. So a lot of their interactions yeah. happened as they were like walking to class and then after classes. Um, and, uh, and that's kind of just how we shot the movie. And that's a full circle thing. And that's what we were talking about before. I, honestly, my, like, I, you know, I'm working on a couple projects right now, one of which is another feature film. And, and the only thing I'm changing is the camera this time. I'm only going to an Airy Mini LF. Everything else is staying oh, nice. the same. No yeah. light, I'm gonna use a 50 millimeter again. Um, and, uh, and I've got another project about uh, these two bank robbers that go hide out in the Everglades, and um, but you do you have you have a, a a couple of interesting projects. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about the the Netflix project? Yeah, um, yeah. So this is uh, this is something that's been in the work for ten years. <laughs> um, you know, it's interesting being at the point right now where I am with it because when I was twenty one years old. I read a book called Real to Deal by Dub Simmons, which was a book that kind of changed my life when it came to filmmaking. And he said in it that it took Tarantino 13 years to make Reservoir Dogs. And I remember reading that as a 21 year old. And I remember thinking that is the longest time, like 13 years, how could you, like how, why did it take so long? Now, when I read it, I'm like, that is so fast. I don't know how he made quickly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, yeah, it's been a 10 year process to get to this. Um, the movie, uh, we're working on a series um, right now that's um, being backed by Endeavor um, uh, to shoot a uh, three part series about um, a man named Bum Farto. 
Bumfardo uh, is sort of this legendary myth slash real person who was a fire chief in Key West. He was indicted for smuggling cocaine. And on the day of his sentencing, he disappeared and has never been seen since. He's sort of the Jimmy Hoffa of South Florida. And the crazy thing about it is that on the outset, it seems like kind of a very straightforward story about a guy who was just afraid of going to jail forever. And so he disappears. Uh, when in fact, um, over 10 years of research, myself and an author named David Sloan um, are the only ones to crack the case. And it took the DEA 43 years and they couldn't do it. It took the FBI 45 years and they couldn't do it. Um, the marshals couldn't do it. The CIA couldn't do it. And it was just two boys from Key West that put everything together. And it took getting 600 pages of redacted FBI files through a FOIA request. It took getting DEA agents um, who are retired and living in the middle of nowhere in Georgia to talk with us about what really happened. And we pieced together this extraordinary story of a man who at his wits end sort of got wrapped up with an incredible amount of wrong people. And uh, his life went from, if Bumfardo were here with us today, he would say, I, I would have gone to jail in a second because what ended up happening to him after was about a thousand times worse. And, uh, and he was involved with a nasty uh, group of people. Um, and the great thing about the story is that there's sort of five leading theories about how he died. And what we do is we track, it's the story of myself tracking all five theories kind of simultaneously and they all start to interweave at points. And there's a great sort of um, major twist at the end. Um, and so yeah. that's a project that I was developing for a long time. And then I knew Alfred Spellman and Billy Corbin at Raconteur. Um, I worked with them even back in their cocaine cowboy days because a lot of that stuff happened in the Florida <laughs> in the key In the Keys, right. So but you know, it's, it's, it sounds like there's a parallel because their first film, uh, Raw, Raw, Raw Deal, I believe is the name of it. Right. You know, they had a similar thing where they kind of tracked down a story and, you know, followed it and, you know, not exactly the same thing, but yeah. investigative in nature. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so I went to them and I said, look, you guys have done this before. Help me out. Oh, right. <laughs> and, uh, and, and they said, uh, and, and they read over the treatment and they, they just absolutely loved it. And we met a couple different times and, and now they're finishing up on a job for Netflix right now. And then the next one up is Bumfardo. So we're nice. literally weeks away from going into pre-production. You know, it's got pre-production has had so many different iterations. Uh, but, you know, I guess, I guess an office space and a desk is what I can say. <laughs> Yeah, so I guess um, maybe I'll be talking to you about a story that I have is, that's investigative in nature that I was kind of, you know, part of it. No, I was part of it in a way. I was involved kind of in the middle of it, um, a case that got solved 15 years later. Mm. So, yeah. yeah. But I mean, um, I'm such a big fan of those, uh, you know, those, those series on Netflix already. Yeah, everyone uh, is. I mean, that that's really one of the number one genres you know this whole true crime genre so wow that's incredible yeah there's something about you know you can live vicariously both sides i mean the great thing about bumfardo is that you know he was sort of a 
real stick it to the man type of guy, you know, who escapes the federal government for 43 years, who does that? And so there's a sense of like, you know, you kind of play with the fantasy of like, because nowadays we're so connected by, you know, ourselves, everything. It's like, you know, you can't, you couldn't get away for two seconds if you tried. (laughs) Right. Kind of vicarious of like, what would it be like to completely disappear? And what would it be like to completely change your life after, after, you know, he was 50 years old? How do you change your complete life at 50? And so I know there's a lot of people that are going to be watching, sort of thinking about that, you know, you fantasize about who does. Yeah. And this is, this is something, you know, this whole notion of and I'm going to get into this in a minute. Um, one little nugget that I want I wanted to talk about, but this this whole notion of you know you started in one point away from Key West, and then it comes around full circle where you're you know doing your latest venture that is connected to Netflix, so it's you know a big big venture about someone there in Key West. So that's another kind of cycle of life and recycle of life. I did say it's Earth Week. Earth yeah. Day coming on Thursday. So yeah. that's incredible. Um, I did want to note one thing as we start to wrap up and then we just have a couple of questions that we always do with okay. everyone that we bring on board. Also, I want to know, this is a Screen Heat exclusive. I don't know if you've talked to anyone else about this story yet, but right. let's say that, you know, we're going to revisit it when, you know, when it comes back, when it comes out in, in, in Netflix. But yeah. um, are you coloring? Are you doing the coloring for the documentary? Yeah, so this was a documentary. Uh, yeah another like sort of weapon in the arsenal um you know because i'm i can't not be a one-man band which is <laughs> my my downfall too but um you know the the thing is that uh when covid hit um i had started using davinci resolve and was fascinated by the process of coloring and and you know at the onset of covid I, if you remember it was like when we were wearing gloves even and you didn't even want to go out of your house uh there was a guy one of the top colorists in the world um, who uh, I had watched for a long time on Instagram and stuff like that and knew who he was. And I knew he taught classes, but they were in London and you'd have to go over there for two months and like, who could afford that? Um, And so I thought, I'm just gonna take this wild chance. And I try to do, this is an interesting thing. I think we were talking about this. Um, You know, once a week, I try to email someone that's way outside of my circle, like a way, like, basically like I try to apply to Harvard once a week, right? Like I try to just take a wild chance once a week and email somebody that's way outside. So this guy, Kevin was like, you know, my once a week and and I emailed him and I said, look, what are the off chances that you would be willing to do an online class? I could get probably a couple filmmakers on board here um, and do an online class during COVID here for the next couple of months. And he said, um, he said, well, listen, Actually, he's like, I was already kind of thinking about doing that, but I want to do a one-on-one class, but I'm going to have to film it if that's okay. And so he cut me this massive deal. I mean, it's like, it's like a $9,000 class to take over in London. And he cut me a deal on that, almost half of that, if he could film it and teach me one-on-one. And I was like, I felt like I should be paying him more money, but <laughs> like, yeah, I'll take that deal. So for the next three months, we filmed a class for the International Colorist Academy um, and I was basically the student and he was the professor and, um, and I took a three month course one-on-one, uh, and that's amazing. And I learned how to color, um, you know, from literally not knowing wh- 
what complementary colors even were to breaking down like rec 2020 space and talking in like you know imaginary numbers about different color spaces and i mean some extraordinary stuff that these top colorists do so yeah so it's just another thing and it's something that i picked up i'm working on a feature film right now doing the color i'm doing a short film next week um and these are just little jobs that i pick up here and there um and you're going to be are you, are you going to do the coloring for your project i'm going to be doing the color for bumfardo and then and then on top of that something that we didn't even talk about in this is that the fact that I've been acting as well for ever. Um, and I've been, you know, since I was a kid, I did theater in Key West. Um, I did acting when I was out in LA. It was kind of like I was, again, wherever the need, you know, necessary work was. Um, and so I've been acting. And then when I moved back here to Miami, uh, I, you know, I have my agent here, Susan Applegate, and, and I've been just working more as an actor since I've been here in Miami than anything else. Yeah, I know Susan. She's awesome. She's one of the best, you yeah. know, the best oh, at it here. So, and, yeah. um, and so, so the bump to invite Quincy to do a table read, I think. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have to become part of the table read theater. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and so the Bumfardo project with Netflix, not only am I directing it, not only did I write it, not only will I color it, but I'm also gonna be acting in some of the recreations uh, as well. And so it's, wow. it's totally full circle. It's like, it's the ultimate, like everything I've been gaining, I'm 40 years old now, and it's sort of like everything I've been gaining over 40 years culminates, or at least takes its first step is how I like to think about it um, all together in this project. Wow, so you have the harmonica, the guitar, the drums on the back, you're like. It feels like that. And, and you know, um, the great thing is, is, you know, there's so, there's so much joy I get out of um, delegating workout because I've been a one man band for so long that when I yeah. do get on set and someone's like, Quincy, I'll take care of this. It's like. <sighs> <laughs> it's not quite Peter Weir, but. Load off your back. Yeah, yeah, at least you got budget. So um, we have two questions that we ask as we get to the tail end of interviews. So the first part of the question, it's a, it's a back to the future question. So if the Quincy Perkins, the 40 year old Quincy can go back and talk to a 21 year old Quincy or a 20 year old Quincy back in, in Key West, what advice would you give yourself then knowing what you know now? I don't know. I don't know if I, I like, there's too much information to and you got to learn it over time you know i think the thing about that i love about getting older is like you kind of learn things when you need to learn them um and and you shouldn't it's like you know a lot of this stuff like had i i wish i would have known about publicists and the power of publicists earlier on maybe as a good one but you all you kind of learn it when you're meant to learn it, you know, I had I known that about publicists early on, would I have made Love and Youth the way I made it, which was so kind of authentically? Maybe not, because I would have known kind of this cheat code after the fact. Um, you know, there's a sense of learning things when you need to learn them um, and making mistakes. Um, I already got such a big heads up being with Peter Weir uh, that I, I'll take, I'll, it's like I won the lottery and I'll take that money and run. And I'm not going to go back and play the lottery again, in a sense. You know what I mean? It's like, I was so lucky and, that, and that's a friendship that will last forever. And it's something that um, I learned so much important stuff at the exact right time that I needed to. And I still make mistakes and I'm still going to make mistakes. 
So I don't know if I would tell my 21 year old self anything. I'd probably just look at him and laugh and, and, you know, um, I tell him not to date that one girl that he dated. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's good. We've not heard that one. (laughs) Romantic. That's a first romantic advice. That's a smart one, actually. Yeah. Um, So the second part of that is advice you would give to not only people just starting out, but, you know, maybe people in their career, a little stagnant or people that just want to expand. Yeah. I think, I mean, the two things that have worked out for me very well is, are the two things that I said. One is go, go make a feature, like do it now, set a date, do it, get two actors, don't get more than two, keep it to two actors, rehearse and shoot a feature film, you know? And look, I shot a script, my script was 42 pages long for a 90 minute film. There were lots of pauses. I also shot the whole film and then went back and did pickups three times. Um, in fact, I shot pickups for a longer amount of time than I shot the original movie um, because of scheduling, but just do it, just do it. Go and shoot your movie, go and do, there's literally, cameras nowadays have 12 stops the dynamic range. There's very, I mean, every cinematographer in the world's gonna hate me right now, but there's very little need for lighting on your first feature. Don't light it, don't use a single light, just go shoot your film. Get your, you know, get your locations. If you're shooting in a club, go shoot in that club. You don't need to light it, you know. Wait till you get a million dollars, then bring your cinematographer on. Go, you know, go get some, get, get the best gaffer you want in the world. But for now, don't light it. Go out there and just shoot it. Get the acting down. Get the story down. That's my number one piece. And then the second piece of advice I have is, take that chance once a week and write to somebody that like is way out of your system, like, you know write to Brad Pitt, ask him, you know, ask him a plan B, like, how do you get a script and write to him? Cause at least then you'll get that out of the way. And then you'll know how to write to someone that's, you know, sort of a lower level maybe than him. And you won't be scared of that. Or, um, and then once in a while, guess what? They answer and they tell you, let's do a one-on-one yeah. class for three months. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a, uh, you know, take that chance slide into the dms as they say (laughs) (laughs) i do have to make a disclaimer um i judge the short films for the miami film festival so you know i i know that this is not in any way to disparage doing short films because you know short films are really great um um, content to work things out and to you know work on your craft and 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 those things so um, there's yeah. a lot to be said about doing short films. I, I love them. I just shot a short film, you know, like I said, I would never do it again. I literally just shot one. And and it was because it was just this little like nagging pit in my stomach of something that I needed to talk about. It was something that I I needed, I had to say. And it was like this idea in my head that just kept going back and forth. And until I made that short film, I wasn't going to be happy. And so I had to make this short film. It was a very therapeutic one too. But it was like I had to sort of get it out of my system. And if you have that, you got to do that too. Because a lot of people, like whether it's a feature film, like I know people that have sat on feature films for 15 years. And it's like, just shoot it, man, because we're never going to get to your second one yeah. um, or third one or fourth one. And, and right. it's definitely like that with short films too. It's like, get it out of your system, go shoot it um, yeah. so that you can get on to that next one. Because, um, you know, 
or at least, I don't know, maybe that's at least for me, because I feel like I've got so many stories inside of me that I want to yeah. tell. It's like, I, I, Love and Youth wasn't my last film. I knew that shooting that feature film wasn't my last. Um, yeah. So it's just about getting through it. Yeah. It's a t-shirt. I think the Quincy Perkins shirt, just shoot it. We <laughs> <laughs> can brand that. Yeah. Here we are. We're back. Yes. Yes. Good stuff. Good stuff. Interesting journey. Yeah. And, you know, all of those interconnecting points with some pretty big deal people, yeah. uh, you know, led him to where he's at now. Right. And, you know, it just shows you oftentimes it's a winding road. It's more often than not, not a straight line. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's positioned in a really, really big place, a really great place. Yeah. So um, I did want to make a correction because I wasn't absolutely sure the name of the show the shonda rhyme show it's called inventing anna ah there we go called inventing anna inventing anna yeah Love it. and it has one of my favorite young actresses up and coming julia garner mm. who is from one of my favorite shows ozark so um and she's getting a lot of critical praise yeah. for that show so that's another home run it's not mm. a single, not a double, not a triple. Yeah. Another home run from Shondaland, Shonda Rhimes uh, production company. That is that yeah. is four bagger right there, but uh <laughs> absolutely. So we got we gotta talk, we gotta talk a little, we mentioned it before, a little corporate Hollywood now. So huge, huge merger that we have alluded to in the past, but it finally this week closed, which is that of Warner Media merging with discovery to form the new warner brothers discovery yeah this is a big one yeah i mean you know warner media is more of a traditional entertainment company discovery right. you know their fare is more reality show reality docu-series reality docu-series mm -hmm. um right but you know they have a pretty robust offering now yeah. how those pieces then fit together Right. You know, you just don't know. But don't know. we talked about Netflix and Netflix, their strategy uh, has been focused on, you know, this kind of holistic uh, original content. Mm -hmm. And so you look at shows like uh, The Tiger King, which was another big, huge breakout for Netflix. And right. that was a docuseries. Now it's being turned into a movie, uh, actually a series. It's being turned into a series. For Netflix, mm -hmm. a narrative series for Netflix. Yeah. So when you look at that model, you can kind of feel then how a merger like this could work. Right. Um, they, of course, they have HBO Max, of which course. has expansive, expansive content. You know, and that's off of the heels of one of the most indelible brands, HBO, you know, right. um, and expanding that brand. So you know, you go to HBO Max, there's just tons and tons and tons of media. Yeah. So what I'm imagining is now you're going to have reality shows and docuseries uh, there on HBO Max. Yeah. And of course, it, you know, HBO proper. Maybe in throwing some CNN breaking news, who knows? But uh, it's going <laughs> to yeah. be that with some Cartoon Network. Who knows? It's going to be interesting because and now it's the job of the new CEO, David Zaslov, to kind of put all those pieces together. He's going to have a lot of direct reports from both sides to kind of figure out how to streamline and uh, and 
as he said, find synergies, which unfortunately is corporate lingo for looks like a lot of cuts and layoffs as well. As yeah, some of these, they've positions. already laid off a bunch of folks on yeah. the on the top level. On, on the, the top, top level. level, yeah. Some which but, and, to, and and they right. laid off over two thousand employees. Mm-hmm. You know, from the time that AT and T bought Warner Media, so right. yeah, there's a lot of cuts. A lot of cuts coming. Yeah. One thing yeah. I can say though is I hope the representation of what's going to happen is not the logo that Oof. they that they that they I don't know who, who came up with the logo, but I hope the representation is not um, in any way. Uh, representative of the logo that they just came up with. Yeah. Speaking um, of ru- of rush decisions, maybe that this was one that maybe and cost cutting. This is an area where maybe they wanted to not cut costs, which is the actual design of the new corporate logo. Which you know, as some folks, according to Variety, have remarked, looks something akin to you know three uh, D word art utility. <laughs> <laughs> Something designed uh, a bit amateurish, as they say, but it's uh, it's really just a very kind of simplistic logo. I remember when they first announced this last summer, they had the more of like the cloud in the scows with the Warner Brothers kind of gold look to it, uh, followed by the line, the stuff that dreams are made of. That got turned into a bunch of hilarious memes. I can imagine what they're going to do with this new thing, which looks like, yeah, something circa 1997. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, with billions of dollars on the line. Yeah. <sighs> Put some thought into your logo, guys. That's uh, it's kind of a big deal. <laughs> but uh, yes, there, I'm sure there's time for that to evolve and correct itself over time. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. Let's but put something, uh, yeah. just put something out really quick. Exactly. Exactly. So we'll, we'll let, we'll let that one pass, but you know, uh, this is our last story of the day, but something that Phil Lord did not let pass was another joke which uh, didn't receive as much attention during the Oscars, but did catch the eyes and ears of uh, Oscar winners, Phil Lord and Chris Miller uh, talking about animation and how, yeah. I don't know if you saw that story, but yeah. And so, you know, Phil Lord is a homie, he is a homie from West Kendall, but not, not in the way that Alex Rodriguez mm. just posited saying that West Kendall is the hood. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, even less. So apparently Phil Lord grew up in Coconut Grove. That's the Grove is a little even oh, less Coconut than, Grove. Okay. Yeah. I guess c- uh, yeah. compared to That's the Grove. Yes. Compared to the Grove. I was trying too hard. Maybe a compared to the Grove is going to say West Kendall is the hood. But um <laughs> But yes, uh, that's that he is a hometown hero, Cuban American kid uh, that grew up here and then went on to bigger and better things in Tinseltown. And so, you know, I, I think it was in college where he met his longtime writing partner, Chris Miller, and they've been doing some great work in both live action and animation. As I mentioned, Academy Award winners for Into the Spider Verse, which was amazing. And they started and- in. They started in animation, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. And then worked and, their way. You know, this is the respect. This yeah. is really is the respect because they started on that movie and then they were fired from that movie. And then they were rehired when the team that was hired after them just mm-hmm. did not work out. Right. So then they came back, cloudy with a chance of meatballs. It was a critical and commercial success. They did the second one, and then they did uh, a 22 Jump Street right. live action. And right. from there, you know, moved 
further and expansive and different mediums. But we can say that they do have real respect for the animation medium. Yes, yes. And so uh, they did take a bit of offense to a joke that was made about essentially animation uh, animated films that were nominated for the Oscars being for kids. And so, you know, their, their take on that is that traditionally in LA, and this is not just about the Oscars, it seems like the animated features and films and stories that are told are on sort of a less uh, of a, uh, they're, they're basically a few pulls down from the live action stuff. And so according to this op-ed, they're, they're saying, you know, that shouldn't be the case. We should honor animated films the same way we do live action films and that's a so it's a very interesting op-ed that they wrote for variety basically saying how animation should be treated at the same level as live action films yeah and i'm going to tell you the problem with that now you know my company we do everything so we we have a feature that's coming out this year we have um a feature-length documentary we have an animated film and we have a documentary short yeah all coming out this year But, you know, if you look at the top films, you definitely look at the top 20 films, you know, animation, you have animated films in there. And so they make a lot of money. You know, Frozen is number 17. Incredibles is number 19. So, you know, if they're making the box office, Mm. then it's not a throwaway category. Right. Right. And it's not just about box office. Actors, voiceovers, those are as hard and as well thought out as live action experiences. And because I work with both and directing live action and directing uh, voiceover, you're putting in the same emotive energy. You're putting in the same uh, heart and soul and you can feel it really when you watch these animated pieces and so if you are putting in the same energy the same effort and you're getting big results because a lot of these movies do very very well then that consideration needs to be equal and the same and you have the ability with animation to tell stories in so many different ways yeah and you know a lot of animated films, the ones that make a lot of the, the big money, oftentimes um, are uh, geared towards children. Mm. But I can guarantee you that adults enjoy them as much. Right. There was a movie that just came out, um, and I, I, I can't remember the name, the exact name of the movie, but it's a, a red. That, uh, that just came out turning red or yeah yeah turning that was, red yeah which they dropped on disney plus you know and again my kids saw it they loved it but it doesn't i saw it i loved it you loved it yeah so and uh, it's interesting because phil does mention in the op-ed here this year's winning film in kanto had a sophisticated theme of how family trauma is passed on generationally that many adults with and without children connected to on a deeply personal level exactly so, and, and that think, and that's what yeah. i'm saying you know right. adults enjoy these movies as much as kids, even the ones that are geared towards kids. Mm-hmm. But without, so we're just going to put that to the side, but animation isn't, it, it's a golden age of animation. Oh, yeah. It's it's being married with so many other forms. I mean, documentary, 
you know right now it's it's oftentimes difficult to find a documentary that doesn't have an animated sequence or some kind of animation in it um and documentaries that are full animation Mm. on top of that Mm. and so you know and it's it's you know it's a it's not the easiest genre to work in because the dedication that it takes for this animation you know could take three years to do what i'm saying yeah feature film could take easily three to five years between the development, the voiceover, then the, the animation process, all the effects, all the transitions, all the design work that goes into these films. It's really a huge undertaking with thousands of people working across the world in tandem to create just one feature film. So it really is an art form. And I, I agree. I agree with Phil. I think it should be on the same level. Um, you know, obviously, the Oscar ladies, they're allowed to joke about it. We're not going to get into Oscar jokes, which start. <laughs> the whole thing but uh you know maybe you know i, I don't you know thankfully there no, wasn't no 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 but it wasn't just the, it wasn't just right. oscar jokes you know it was a tease yeah the way that, the way yes. that they treated the category you know the three princesses in general and, correct and what yes. phil lord was saying is that hey whoever you have presenting the oscar for best animated film you know you should have someone there that is treating the art form as seriously as any of the other genres so right Agreed. Agreed, Mr. Lord. I'm with you. I'm with you, Mr. Lord. And Mr. 305, you know, you got to be on our podcast. So we're, we're calling out all our Miami there you go. to come in and, right. and chat with us for a minute. So maybe we'll make the Phil Lord one happen and he can expand on his his thoughts. Yes. So we've had another uh, screen heat under the belt. We're heading towards 100. Another one. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, we want to thank our listeners once again. Thank you for being on this journey with us. I'm Kevin Sharpley. Jail Martinez. This is Screen Heat Miami. A boom. <laughs> a boom and a dale. Till next week.